ago, two months ago, and uh, shared out of Judges and the story of Gideon. And if you were here or you listened, you might remember that I told a, a story about a Bible study for homeless people that I got sort of recruited to do uh, one day right before I went off to Austria. So I was living in Richmond at the time, and if you recall this story, uh, we had just had a powerful sermon, uh, and right after the service was over, somebody approached me and said, hey, do you want to come and uh, preach, uh, share a Bible study with some homeless people who will be living for the next week in our church basement as part of an initiative in Richmond to house homeless people during the winter? And because of what had happened at that sermon, I felt super compelled to say yes, even though my flesh definitely did not want to do that. And God did some amazing things, and the point of that story in context of that sermon was just that God can do amazing things if you're open. In your weakness, he will be made strong. Well, I want to tell you the rest of that story today because it illustrates what I want to share this morning, and that is that that sermon that was preached that morning was by our missions pastor, and the focus of the sermon was on uh, the poor and having a personal connection to the poor. I only remember one line from it. I remember how it made me feel, but I only remember one actual thing he said, and that was, do you have a face for the poor? Do you know somebody? When you imagine the poor, do you think of somebody's name, or do you think of a particular face of someone you actually know? Or is it just this vague concept to you? And I was shook by that because I realized it's just a concept to me. I didn't actually really know any poor people. I lived in a nice part of town with a bunch of people who looked a lot like me. I was preparing at that moment to go to Austria to serve as a missionary, and yet in my own hometown, I didn't really know any poor people. And I was struck by that, and I was a little humbled by that, very humbled by that. And God, in his great mercy, gave me an opportunity immediately to do something about that. I had this immediate opportunity. As soon as that service was over, somebody said, hey, I'll give you this opportunity to put a face on the poor. And by the end of that night, I knew poor people. I knew a bunch of homeless people by name and continued to see them the rest of that week and for a few months after that. So my hope is that maybe you're in that same situation where if I asked you to close your eyes and imagine poor people or the lost or the least of these, maybe you don't actually know anybody that fits into one of those categories And if that's true of you, we are going to give you an opportunity. It's not going to be today, but you are going to have an opportunity to do something about that, to get to know some people who fall into that category and have perhaps a changing experience of the sort that I had. So let's launch into this, and let me pray first. Father God, open our hearts and our ears to what you would have for us this morning uh, for the sake of your name and for the sake of the lost in this community. In Jesus' name, amen. So we need to rethink missions if we're really going to dive into this. Missions is all about being sent. So we have our first slide up here. Where does the word come from? It's a Latin word. It's missionum, and it means act of sending. So the very term missions is tied to this idea of being sent. Similarly, in the New Testament, we find the Greek word apostole. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, And that's where we get, that means ascending, or the sent ones, and that's where the word apostle comes from. So Jesus' followers, who were called the apostles, they were being identified as people who were sent. 
So what do you think of when you hear that word? When you hear missions, you probably think of the people whose pictures are up on the bulletin board out there. People like Emily and the Cossies and Matthew and Casey, people who have left their home and gone overseas for the sake of the gospel. And that's not wrong. Those are all missionaries. And that's what we think of when most of the time we hear missions, we think of people like that. Uh, but that's incomplete because missions, this idea of being sent, this idea of being an apostle, is inclusive of all of us. And we see that throughout Scripture. That's not my idea. That's God's idea. And I'm going to prove it to you because we're going to go look at a ton of Scripture that all talks about this same thing. So what does the Bible say about being sent? First of all, we see the words send, sending, sends, or sent. Various forms of the word send are used 992 times in Scripture, in the NIV at least. Number may vary based on your translation, but 990, almost 1,000 times we see that word used in Scripture. Similarly, the word go is 1,413 times in Scripture. Now, I was going to count all the times that it was the imperative form, so the command to go, but after 1,413, I decided to give that up as a bad job. So trust me, it's a lot. You see it over and over again. And we see particular stories of people in Scripture that illustrate this. And so let's look at a couple of sending stories from the Old Testament first. First of all, there's Abraham. And hopefully you're familiar with this verse. This is sort of like the very first Great Commission. Genesis 12, 1 through 2 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, there's that word, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is the foundation for all missions, whether it's international or local. Um, this idea that we are to go, we are being sent out, this is the foundation for what people like Emily and the Cossies have done. They have literally gone. They've left their home country like Abram was called to do. They've left the security of their father's house, all that they knew, their family members, and they've gone to a place. Now, Abram was called to go to a place that he didn't even know where he was going. You know, the Cossies bought a ticket to go to Vienna. They knew where they were going, so they had a head, a head start on him and a leg up. Abram was called to go and just in obedience, and God said, well, I'll tell you the destination later. It was a real act of faith. But Abram's act of faith, he founded the nation of Israel, and through the nation of Israel, God is bringing blessing to all nations. What's not up here is the rest of the verse talks about how he's going to be a blessing, that's there, and that his blessing will extend to all nations. Out of one nation will be blessings to all nations. So Abram's the first who's sent out in God's name to do something that was going to impact those to the ends of the earth. We also have a great example in Isaiah. And this is the song that we sang. I'm so happy we sang that song this morning. I haven't sung that song since my university days, probably 30 years ago. Um, and I heard the voice of the Lord. So this is Isaiah. Let's give some context to this. He's a prophet to the divided kingdom of Judah and Israel right near the end as they're about to be taken off into exile. And he's commissioned, and this is his commissioning right here in chapter 6. He appears before the Lord, and the voice of the Lord says, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go. And I didn't put the rest in because it gets into some very deep theological waters that we don't have time for this morning. That's a whole other sermon. But I did want to share this part of it because this isn't the same as the call to Abram. Abram's call was specific. You go. 
Abram, I'm calling you very specifically to go. Whereas here, Isaiah is one of a lot of beings that are present here, and the Lord is saying, whom, who, who's going to go? Anybody? Anybody? And Isaiah's like, pick me, pick me, pick me, I'll go. And the Lord's like, all right, it's going to be you. And oh, by the way, it's going to be hard. I'm giving you a message to give to Israel and to Judah that they're not going to want to hear. But thank you for your willingness. I'm sending you. So Abram, or Isaiah here, he responds to a call that isn't specific to him, but he takes it on. He's the one who says, yes, I will do this. I will, I will go, even if it's a hard message you, make me, you know, make me deliver. We also see a lot of these stories in the New Testament. First and foremost, Jesus. If you read the Gospel of John, Jesus is constantly referring to the Father who sent me. We see this in John 8, 42. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And if you read the Gospel of John, you're going to see about three dozen times where he refers to himself like that. If they reject me, they're not rejecting me, but the one who sent me. Anyone who accepts me is accepting the one who sent me. That language shows up all over John. He constantly is referring to himself, his identity, as a sent one. I have been sent by the Father to teach you, to show you the kingdom of God. And then his disciples, same kind of story. They're all called to leave their professions and their wives and their families. Leave what you know and come join this ragtag band of unexpected heroes, these fishermen and tax collectors, this, this group of people that you would not, this is not your fantasy team of, of saints right here, these disciples. And if you watch The Chosen, you'll get that. They were really rough around the edges. But nevertheless, they're the ones that God called. And he calls them to come to him, and then he calls them and sends them out, too. So we see that in Matthew 10, 5 through 7, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Not yet. That's coming later. Right now, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we see a very similar calling in Luke 9, 1 through 2. He called the twelve together. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So he gives them very specific empowering for the job he's going to give them. And he gives them very specific instructions too. And they're things that this group of people could not have expected to do on their own. They were supernaturally empowered to do this. You don't take fishermen and turn them into preachers, but Jesus does. So there's, and it's not just these guys, although this was his inner core, this was his core group of 12, there was also in Luke 10, we hear about 72 others. And I love this book, this chapter, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, because I've often felt like one of the others, not one of the like special 12, but one of the other people that Jesus has called to himself. And they are also called, he says in chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, after the, this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So they kind of work as an advance team to like set the stage for what the Lord was going to be doing. And he sends them out in pairs, very, uh, very strategic there. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So not only are they sent, they're called to like pray for others to be sent because 
there, it's clear that there's more people needed. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. This is an important phrase that's included here because it's important for us to realize our job is not to necessarily plant or sow. We're, we're, we're reaping. God's already at work. We don't have to start from the very beginning necessarily. We've got to trust that the Holy Spirit is out there doing a lot of this work and that when we go out there, we're simply following in his footsteps. In a sense, they were going where he was about to go, but in another sense, they were going where he was already at work because they're just reaping that's already been, you know, they're reaping in the harvest. And so we should be praying likewise, pray for more laborers out in the fields to collect uh, what's ready to be what's ready to be reaped. And then there's this warning at the end, like I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Don't, don't be naive about this. It's going to be dangerous at times. It's going to be hard. There are people who will oppose you. There will be people who will threaten you. Um, but we go anyway. We go in faith, and we go in trust that the Lord will protect us. And that's why he sends them out two by two, so they've got somebody with them. They're not, they're not doing solo acts here. Another example we see in Acts 13 is Paul and Barnabas. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Uh, a very famous commissioning as well. Um, so Paul, of course, was one of the first missionaries that went all over the world bringing the gospel, and Barnabas was with him, uh, doing that work alongside him for a while. Um, and there's I think it's key here that it's while they were fasting and worshiping that this happened. They were ready and, and open to what the Lord was going to do. And then they commissioned them, uh, laying hands on them, and sent them off. And then finally, this is not just for a few super spiritual heroes of the faith. This is for all believers. And we see in John 17, 16 through 18, Jesus is uh, praying to his Father, and this is what he prays for us. They, meaning us, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus is taking his very calling. I am sent by the Father into the world. And he's saying, my earthly ministry is about to wrap up here. I'm commissioning them to do what I've done. They're going to take my message. I, I won't be here physically anymore. They're going to be here and they're going to bring that message to the nations and to their neighbors as well. And then in John 20, 21, this was so important that it's like the, the crux of what he says is his final words. In almost in all of the books of the Bible, you're going to see some version of this in all of the Gospels. John 20, 21, Jesus' final words to his disciples, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So what happens in John 17, that's his prayer to God. Some people, obviously somebody heard it and wrote it down or was given that message, but that, wasn't, that was a conversation between Jesus and his father. In John 20, it's now, I'm telling you, this is my plan. I've been sent, now I'm sending you. And we see a similar message in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. This is the Great Commission. You've probably all heard this before. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Mark sixteen fifteen, similar, he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And I underlined the active words here. What are we supposed to do as we're being sent out? We're supposed to make disciples. We're supposed to baptize them. 
baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to teach people, and we're supposed to proclaim the gospel. So he's given us very specific things that we are to do. Send out, proclaim the kingdom, and do it in these specific ways. Now let's go back to the Old Testament, because there's a few other examples I want to share with you. These are people who didn't go willingly. The examples we've looked at before were people who were like, yes, I'll do it. I get it. Let's go. There were some people who went unwillingly or were like, nope, no thank you. So first example, Joseph. His story is covered in Genesis 37 through 45. I'm not going to read that whole thing because we'd be here until early afternoon if I did that. But you probably know this story. How does Joseph go to Egypt? Does he go willingly? He's like, does God say, hey, Joe, I need you to go down to Egypt because I got something in mind. Uh, And Joseph would probably have been like, no, I'm good. I've got a pretty coat. My dad loves me. Brothers are a bit of a problem, but, you know, I got my dad's eye, so we're going to, I'm good here. I'm fine. Thanks. Send somebody else. No, you know, God orchestrates it. Joseph's brothers turn on him and throw him in a pit and then sell him to a bunch of Ishmaelites who take him to Egypt and put him into slavery. And this is actually all part of God's plan because God was bringing salvation to Egypt and to Israel and to many other nations through Joseph because, of course, he has the dreams. He's able to, he, has, uh, he is able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, that is. And he sees that there are seven years of plenty coming, followed by seven years of famine, and Pharaoh puts him into charge of doing a ration, and Egypt is able to save all of this grain in anticipation of the seven years of famine, and they're the only ones who prepared adequately. And so all these nations come to Egypt to not die, basically, to not starve to death, including his own family comes down to Egypt. So through Joseph, uh, salvation, literal salvation, literally not dying, comes to his own family, to Egypt, and to many other nations uh, through that unwillingly being sent down there. Another great example of Jonah in the book of Jonah You can read that. I hope you have. It's a really interesting book. Jonah's not only unwilling to go, he goes the opposite direction. He's like, you want me to go over there? All right, I'm heading this way. No thanks. I I want nothing to do with Nineveh because they're scoundrels and they don't deserve your message. So he runs away. He gets on a ship, starts sailing in the opposite direction. God brings up a storm. The sailors are like, what's going on? And Jonah's like, it's me. It's my fault. Throw me over. And of course, the fish swallows him up, spits him back on dry land. And Jonah's like, all right, I get it. (laughs) This is going to happen whether I want it to or not. Fine, I'll go. But you can't make me enjoy it. And then he goes and he's like, fine, I'll tell them. You got to repent. Oh, really? Okay, we will. And and Jonah's like, you will? Really? I didn't expect that to happen. And now I'm kind of irritated that it happened because these guys aren't deserving. Like, what's up with that? So Jonah's 100% unwilling, unwilling at the beginning, and he's still kind of grumpy at the end of the book. But nevertheless, God used him to bring a city that didn't deserve his grace, his grace. And so uh, the nations are impacted by Jonah, regardless of his willingness to respond to that call. So all of this to say, all of these examples in scripture are basically to say, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a sent one. Hopefully, We've established that, and you believe it. And the question then is, are you willingly or unwillingly sent? Are you more like Jonah, who are like, I'd rather stay home and not be engaged with the people around me, especially the ones that are like a little bit difficult to be with? And rather than we just think about missions as the people out on the billboard, it's anyone. 
anyone can be sent from anywhere to anywhere. And if you're a Christian, not only can you be sent, you are being sent right now. So there's another word that I want to introduce, you know this word too, but uh, in terms of how this relates to this idea of being sent, and that's uh, ambassadorship. That helps us understand this in a fuller way. Paul calls us that in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. So what exactly does that mean? How are we ambassadors for Christ? Well, the official definition of that is found in Merriam-Webster Dictionary. The online version is an official envoy, a diplomatic agent of the highest rank accredited to a foreign government or sovereign as the resident representative of his or her own government or sovereign or appointed for a special and often temporary diplomatic assignment. So let's unpack that a little bit. What exactly does that mean? Well, you know that like, the U.S. has an ambassador to most foreign countries, and that person is there to represent the government of the United States, to be a resource for citizens of that country who live there, uh, and to represent the U.S.'s interests in that country. And you know, the first line of diplomatic communication is happening there. So it's really important that that, that person is representing that government well, not representing their own interests, but representing the interests of their sending government or their sovereign, which means like the king or the queen who rules over that country. And then the second half that I've underlined is there's some kind of a special assignment. Now, that captures it reasonably well, but here's where it's helpful to have other languages in your quiver. German uses the word Botschaft. Botschaft is the German word for embassy. So in Vienna, we had the Amerikanische Botschaft, the American Embassy. I knew where that was because I needed to know that in case something ever happened in Austria. So that's also, however, the word for message. Same word, two meanings, embassy, message. So if I said, I have a message for you in German, it would be, ich habe ein Botschaft für dich. I have a Botschaft for you. I have a message for you. And I'm going to the embassy. I'm going to the Botschaft to deliver a Botschaft. Get it? And then Botschafter the, is the person. The, em, the ambassador is the Botschafter. Same word means messenger. So that adds a different dimension, right? They're not only representing the government and a special assignment, but part of that special assignment is they have a message to share. Now, does the American ambassador in Vienna like sing the praises of the U.S. and try to convince people to move there? Probably not. But for us, this is really important because it's a different dimension of being an ambassador uh, and it helps us to understand what Paul meant when he said, an ambassador for Christ. Who are we representing? What's our government? What's our, who's our sovereign? Christ the King. He's our sovereign. He's who sent us. And where did he send us? Earth. We're his ambassadors here, right now in Rochester, some of us in the Middle East and Austria and other places that we've sent out from this congregation, and what's our message? We have a message, right? He's given us a message to share with the people in this foreign land that we live in. So what is it? Actually, hold, put a pause on that. Um, a good ambassador stays on message. It's really important. You have to align with that sending authority. Don't get too cozy with the host nation. There are ambassadors who've been recalled. Usually what happens is they get sent out because there's some kind of enmity between the two countries. But every once in a while, an ambassador is recalled by his home country because he ceases to represent them. That happened in 1980. 
The U.S. ambassador to Guatemala was getting too cozy with the opposition government, and the U.S. were supporting a different guy, but their ambassador was supporting the other team, and they're like, no, 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 come home. You're not doing us any good here. If you're with them more than you're with us, you're no longer representing our interests. So he was recalled. And we have to be careful that we're representing our home country, i.e. the kingdom, um, more than we're, you know, becoming so much like the people to whom we were sent that we're no longer effective. So if you're a believer, you're a citizen of another kingdom, citizen of the kingdom of God, and we're just visiting here for a limited time. So now let's talk about what's that message? What's the boat shaft that we're delivering? Well, it's the gospel, right? And a million different ways to express the gospel. It's hope for eternity. It's hope for the here and now. Transformation, freedom for the captive, sanctification, future glory, all of those things. So the key thing is we know what the general message is, how do we make that specific to who the person is who's in front of us? What do they need to hear? Do they need to hear about freedom for the captive? Are they imprisoned by some sort of substance abuse problem or something else? You know, what is your testimony also? What, what is the way that God impacted you and set you free? Maybe that's the message that God's given you to share with them. So we have the message that we know, the gospel, and all of the ways it impacts our life, and then we tailor it for the people that we're speaking to and try to make it uh, relevant and personal to them. That's our message, the message of salvation that we tailor to the person that we're speaking to. And who are we sent to? Who, who is our audience? So there's five different categories of people. One, everyone who's eligible for citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. That's priority one. We want to give the message of adoption to the, all the people who don't know that they're adopted and who are living like orphans. We have to tell them, you don't have to be that way. You don't have to live like an orphan when you are, in fact, a child of the king. Live differently. Know who you are and live that way. A little more specifically, the nations. We've seen that come up in Genesis 12 already. The word nations, or the concept of ethnos in Greek, appears 559 times in the NIV. In 42 of the 66 books, you're going to see that concept. God is all about bringing gospel to the nations. More specifically than that, our neighbors. We have a whole bunch of verses that talk about that. It's all throughout the law that God gives to Israel in the Old Testament. I just chose one, Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. And then uh, Matthew 22.36-40, Jesus kind of doubles down on this. And he's asked, which is the great commandment in the law? And he responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus 19.18. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So while in Leviticus, this is one of many things are commanded to do, Jesus says, well, this is like top two right here. Number one, love the Lord. Number two, love your neighbor. This is super important, super central. And then in Luke 10, he kind of changes the game a little bit, changes the parameters of the game, because there's a lawyer that comes and tries to trap him. And the lawyer, you know, he's asked this question, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers this. And the lawyer's like, yeah, but who is my neighbor? And what he's trying to do here is get the least number of people he has to love. 
It'd be like me going to Jesus and saying, neighbor is the guy who lives on the left side of me and the guy who lives on the right side of me, but not really the people across the street. It's more, it's just these two. It's very literally the person on my left and on my right, not the people behind me. So it's just two people. I only have to love those two people. I don't have to worry about the people across the street. And Jesus is like, no, no, uh-uh. So he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, right? You know that story, who helps out? It's the Samaritan that helps out the guy who's been attacked on the road. So Jesus expands the definition and says it's not about the person living next to you or not only about that person, who very often is going to be a lot like you, by the way, the people who live around you probably. This is about crossing boundaries of culture and status and acceptability He's, don't just stay in the people are right around you. You got to go to find the people who you don't want to hang out with. Those are the people who you need to be thinking of as your neighbor. So this definition of who's your neighbor gets expanded dramatically here. That's who we're called to love. More specifically than that, widows, orphans, and sojourners. You'll see sojourners in one version. You'll see strangers. This is basically modern-day refugees. So these specific groups of people are called out numerous times. Back again in Leviticus 19, 33 through 34 says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. Treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native. Treat him like he's one of you and love him for yourself because you were strangers once in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And this gets reiterated in the next verse we're going to look at in Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, there we go, and loves the sojourner. There's all three of them in one verse. And then we get specifics here, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So again, he's referencing their own history and saying you've got to love these people, the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner. In Deuteronomy 29.11, there's a re-upping of the covenant with Israel, and sojourners are very specifically included in it. And then in 31.12, there's the reading of the law, and once again, we see sojourners are included. It says, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of, of this law. In Isaiah 16.3 and 4, we see this verse, let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you and be a shelter to them. I like this one. I chose to include this one just because it almost speaks to the idea of homelessness. Like, hey, there's this idea of metaphorical shelter, but maybe it's a literal one too. Like actually help to house them. In 1 Timothy 5, the whole chapter gives you know, a whole bunch of instructions to the church and very specific instructions on caring for widows. And then James 1.27, we have this great uh, summation of religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then finally, the least of these, this broad category. Hopefully you're familiar with this verse in Matthew 25, 34 through 40, which tells them about all the times that, you know, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, I w you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. And they're like, when did we do this for you? I don't remember that happening. And he said, whenever, uh, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's a great way to summarize this. Who are we sent to? We're sent to uh, the nations, our neighbors, widows, orphans, sojourners, and the least of these. So now what? Hopefully you're, you're convinced. 
We are sent ones, we are ambassadors, we're called to very specific people in our community. What do we do about this? Well, we're going to do something that we're calling the All Church October Outreach, or ACHU. <laughs> or if you're a more serious person, we can call it the Berean Ministry Morning, if that seems like a better option for you. And that's going to be October 10th, five weeks from today, roughly 9 to noon. We'll start, some things will start around 9, some things will end around noon, we'll see. Um, October 10th is basically going to be our ch chance to say, here am I, send me. Our chance not just to go to church, but to be the church. On October 10th, we're going to be the sermon. The proclamation of God's word to those who would never come through these doors. We won't have drums or guitar or keys or melodies to sing that morning, but there will be worship in every conversation, every act of service, every expression of God's kindness to his children. So why Sunday? Why are we doing it on the Sunday? One, I know you're not busy. Your calendar is already booked that morning, but we've just canceled it. Like, we've just canceled church, and we're replacing it with this. So I know you're free. You don't have anything else scheduled during that time. So this is it. This is what we're going to do, and I hope all of you will participate in it. Secondly, we're targeting unchurched people. Who's going to be out and about on a Sunday morning? The unchurched people, right? They're the ones that are going to be shopping at Hy-Vee, driving around, at home. The church people are going to be in church, except us. You know, we're going to be doing church. So that's why we're doing Sunday. And what are we going to do? We're going to be servants. We're going to show kindness. We're going to meet practical needs. Uh, we're going to share the gospel with our actions. And if the Spirit leads, our words as well. Uh, these are super easy, non-confrontational ways to engage with the people around us, these folks that we're talking about. And we've got something that meets almost every one of these categories, so sojourners, refugees. In our parking lot out here, we're going to offer driving lessons to refugees. We have a partnership with a guy named, who is with Arrive Ministries, so we went to him and said, well, what can we do to bless refugees? He's like, a lot of them are studying for their driving test, and they don't know how to parallel park or do three-point turns. So we're going to get a bunch of cars out here, and we're going to help them with that. We're going to help them with those practical skills. We're going to serve them coffee and tea and hang out and chat with the ones as they're waiting. So we're going to set up a little course out here, maybe two, and teach some refugees how to drive. Uh, we're going to go to the landing. That's the homeless shelter that's down on Silver Lake. Uh, I don't know what we're going to do there yet. They know that we are interested. They've said, yeah, we'll find something for you. The details are still kind of coming together with that. We're going to bless homeless people somehow, some way, probably in a real practical way. Similarly, uh, we've got a whole bunch of widows and elderly folks that are living over here in the Kenosha apartments. So we're going to go over there. We have a long relationship with them already. We're just going to go and blitz them with kindness and see what we can do. Is there stuff we can do in their apartments? Is there stuff we can do to their cars or outside? Again, details still coming together, so we're going to go over there and do that. Uh, we've gotten contact with a group at Zumbro Ridge Estates. That's, I think, a low-income housing community, the least of these, the downtrodden. Again, meet physical needs there, find ways that we can bless them. We're going to do something we're calling coffee and prayer. We don't have a site for this yet, but we're working on a couple of options. And this is going to be free coffee, and we'll pray for you. I have no idea what the Lord is going to do there, but that's probably the one I'm going to want to be at because I have no idea what the Lord is going to do. When you stick up a sign that says free coffee, and hopefully we're going to be down near the high V and like Aldi that's down off of uh, 14, 
Uh, we got our eyes on a spot down there. Um, just say, hey, come and get some coffee, and when you come and get coffee, how can I pray for you? And just see what the Lord does. Some people will be like, nope, not interested. Just give me the coffee. And other people will then tell you their life story. And then you'll get to pray for them. And who knows what's going to happen there. And then if there's nothing on this list, we're providing five opportunities that we think meet with people in all kinds of different life stages and different age groups too. Something for introverts, something for extroverts. If we find that there's something that doesn't fit your family, then do a neighborhood prayer walk. Um, Just go throughout your neighborhood and see how the Lord will lead you to pray for your neighborhood on your own time. So we're going to need people to do practical projects, people willing to teach refugees to drive, people to serve coffee and tea, people to pray. We're going to need some people to photograph all of this. Looking at you, Polly Coleman. Um, We're going to need a bunch of stuff. And so what comes next with this? One, we're going to have more details in the next couple weeks. Hopefully next week we'll have a little bit more knowledge about what specifically we're going to do. If there's something that I've said that you're like, oh yeah, that's for sure what I want to help out with, and you want to get in early to help with some of the logistics and details, come see me or Jeff Schmall or Dickie Swanson or John Young or Dave Atwood. That's the leadership team that's putting all this together, and we need help. So if you want to do something and you know one of these is really up your alley, come see me about that. And then hopefully sign-ups, specific sign-ups, because we're going to need to get commitments for some of these things so we know how much we can do. That's going to begin in two weeks, September 19th. So as I wrap up, I'm going to ask Bobby to come on up for our final song. Um, Are you excited? Or are you scared out of your mind? Or maybe a little bit of both. This can be super intimidating for people, but I hope you're not already making plans to be out of town that day. Um, If you act like a true ambassador, one of God's sent ones, I promise you, you won't be disappointed if you step out in faith with us on October 10th. You will see God move. I can guarantee you that. And you will make a difference in the life of somebody who's one of our neighbors. And if, despite those assurances, you're still apprehensive, I'll ask you and close with just this one important question. Is he worthy? Is he worthy?